you. And we are grateful, Lord, already for what you have done this morning. We ask that your presence continue to be felt. We ask that you would continue to allow us to hear from you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab your Bibles, turn to Psalm 23 with me. And as you're turning, think for a moment this. If, if someone were to write a song about you, what would they say? Don't answer it out loud. <laughs> but if someone were to write a song about you, what would they say? Hey, years down the road, a couple generations. Ooh, that's good. I can get it next time it rings. <laughs> years down the road, if someone wrote a song about you, would there be any chance at all that it could get confused by somebody else or with somebody else? That makes sense? There are times when songs get written, songs get sung, where if you don't know the story behind it, there's a possibility that you could think it's about one person when in reality it's about another person. Okay, three quick examples. Ed Sheeran, uh, he's a modern pop culture artist and songwriter, uh, phenomenal songwriter. Um, yes, really good. He, he's, he writes a song called Galway Girl. Yes, he does. Okay. For months and months and months, I didn't know the story behind this song, and I was singing it loud, and, you know, I was enjoying it, thinking that I was singing about Ed and his girl. Turns out, it's written about his grandpa. <laughs> that changed things. <laughs> you all know this past week that Billy Graham, the great evangelist, passed away. Okay. So many of us grew up watching him, listening to him, reading him. He had quite a legacy. Now his son Franklin is following in that same, that same path, those same footsteps. I mean, lives have been and will continue to be impacted by Franklin Graham. Now years from now, like years and years and years, if somebody were to write a song about Billy Graham, do you think it could potentially get confused that people might think it's about Franklin? I mean, especially if the song doesn't have his name in it, but it talks about talking in front of crowds of people, converting many people to the faith of Jesus Christ, challenging people to live a transformed life. Is there any chance that years down the road, it could be confusing as to who the song is about, who inspired the song? Maybe. My grandpa is named James McCoyne, was named James McCoyne. He was a longtime pastor walked with people through a lot of the highs and lows of life, spent a lot of time in the pulpit. He had a wife who loved music and was really good at music. Let's say a song is written about him. And again, multiple generations pass. And somebody starts studying some songs, and they come across this one about a guy named James, who was a pastor, who spent a lot of time in the pulpit, who had a wife that loved music and was really good at it. Do you think it's possible that they could confuse that song about my grandpa with me? No. <laughs> Not in the least bit. Not a chance. <laughs> at least two of you said yes. Thank you. It is possible. We were talking multiple generations that pass. We are wrapping up a series on the life of Jacob. We've been looking at his story, his faith story over the last six weeks. 
Uh, he is a patriarch in the Old Testament. And we've called this sermon series of the life of Jacob or the story of Jacob and the story of us. We've called it that because so often we're seeing how Jacob's story fits in our story. Now, as I was thinking about how to wrap up this series, I thought, what would be the best way? And this bright idea came to me. I'm going to write a song, and I'm going to sing it in front of everybody. And then I started thinking, maybe somebody else already wrote a song. And maybe people have been singing it for years and years and years, and maybe that song was inspired by the life of Jacob, but for so many years, we've been thinking it was inspired by somebody else's life. Perhaps a great, 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 great grandson. Maybe. I've got no proof of my claim. Okay, I just want to tell you that right up front. I can't prove what I'm going to say this morning, but it's at least worth pondering. Okay, Having read Psalm 23 three different times in three different translations this morning, hopefully you've made a connection with where I'm going. If you haven't, I'm going to spell it out really clearly. I think that there is at least the smallest chance, the smallest possibility that when King David wrote Psalm 23, he was thinking about his nine great-grandfather. Just the smallest chance. Now, so often we think that Psalm 23 is written by King David about King David, right? The shepherd king. And if push came to shove, I would probably agree with you this morning. But let's, let's dream a little bit, okay? Walk with me on this path. What first got me thinking that David could have been thinking about his great ancestor Jacob was what Jacob said while blessing Joseph's sons. Genesis chapter 48, verse 15 and 16. Jacob had made it to Egypt after Joseph had been gone for so many years. Joseph and Jacob and the family had been reunited, and, and Jacob went to Joseph to bless him and his two sons. And he says this. It says, Then Jacob blessed Joseph, and he said, May the God before whom my grandfather Abraham and my father Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this very day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they preserve my name and the names of Abraham and Isaac, and may their descendants multiply greatly throughout the earth. Did you catch what was said right in the middle? The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this very day. Now, recite with me the first five words of Psalm 23. You don't even have to look at the screen, okay? First five words, ready? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Jacob talked about God being his shepherd all my life. See the similarities? It could have been some sort of inspirational moment from King David. Thinking back, because back then they told stories about their ancestors. All right, so that's what first got me thinking about it. In fact, I was going to tailor this entire series around Psalm 23, but it ended up just being today. Here, let's, let's keep going. Let's see how else this fits together. Psalm, 20, Psalm 23, verse 1, all of it. Let's read together. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. I have all that I need, or I shall not want. Could Jacob have said that? Sure. I mean, absolutely. He essentially did say that. When he and his brother Esau were about to be reunited after 20 years apart, Jacob started sending some gifts to him to, to kind of appease any anger, right? You know, a small gift basket. A small gift basket of 200 female goats, 20 fe uh, male goats. 200 ewes, 20 rams. 
30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. This is not just a couple of Hershey chocolate bars saying, I'm sorry for what happened 20 years ago. I mean, this is a serious gift. Now, listen to the exchange between Jacob and Esau. This is Psalm 33, or excuse me, Genesis 33, starting in verse 8. It says, And what were all those flocks and herds I met as I came? Esau asked. Well, Jacob replied, They're a gift, my lord, to ensure your friendship. My brother, I have plenty, Esau answered. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob insisted. He said, no, if I have found favor with you, please accept this gift from me. What a relief to see your friendly face. It's, it's like seeing the face of God. Please take this gift I have brought for you, for God has been very gracious to me. I have more than enough. And because Jacob insisted, Esau finally accepted the gift. I have more than enough. I shall not want. See the connection? Let's keep going. Psalm 23, verses 1 to 3 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leaves me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. Now, as I was looking at Psalm 23 and comparing it to Jacob's life, this is one of those like verses, these lyrics in the song that I thought, well, there's not really an obvious connection. Because if you look at Jacob's life, you're going to see that there weren't too many times where there was calm quiet and peacefulness, was there? I mean, the unrest started when he was in the womb. He and his brother spent time in turmoil. And then they were born, and then I don't imagine that it got any better, because eventually you see one brother stealing another brother's birthright. That led to Jacob having to flee, which led to 20 years of labor from an uncle that wasn't always fun to work with, which led to four wives, 13-plus kids, lots of travel, entire town of men massacred, death of a son, famine. Does any of that sound like peaceful streams to you? It doesn't to me. But if you look at the end of his life, perhaps it was the last 17 years of his life that David may have been thinking about when he penned these words about peace and provision and meadows and streams and strength. Genesis chapter 47, verse 5 and 6. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Now that your father, Jacob, and his brothers have joined you here, choose any place in the entire land of Egypt for them. Give them the best land of Egypt. Let them live in the region of Goshen, and if any of them have special skills, put them in charge of my livestock too. Ah, skip a few verses, go down to verse 11. It says, so Joseph assigned the best land of Egypt to his father and his brothers, and he settled them there just as Pharaoh had commanded. Now, what happened while they were there in the best land of Egypt? Same chapter, verse 27. Meanwhile, the people of Israel... Jacob's people, settled in the region of Goshen in Egypt. There they acquired property, they were fruitful, and their population grew rapidly. Jacob lived for 17 years after his arrival in Egypt, so he lived 147 years in all. Could that part, those last 17 years, have been the part that David was thinking about when he talked about green pastures, still water, and a restored soul? It's possible. Just thinking out loud. Psalm 23, 1 to 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. 
He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Paths of righteousness. Think about the story of Jacob that we've been looking at over the last six weeks. Does any part of that story, any part of his choices, any part of his life speak righteousness? Lying, deception, trickery, leaving grandpa before grandpa could kiss the grandkids? Uh Uh-uh. Having a lot of sons and then having a favorite one? Is any of that righteous? Does any of that bring glory to God's name? What if we look at it from another angle? Okay? I'm pretty sure that about half of your Bibles, if you look down at Psalm 23 that you have open, half of your Bibles say paths of righteousness. Now the other half talks about God guiding along right paths. Right paths to bring honor to his name. Either translation works. Either is correct in the Hebrew. Right paths seems to give us a little bit more leeway. And since uh, musicians are always taking creative liberties, we're going to do that with this passage. So think about it in the long-term view of Jacob's life. Could anything in his life long-term have brought glory to God? Well, we knew from the start that he and his brother were going to be rivals. God told mommy that, you know, that's what's taking place in there. Turmoil's taking place. So what if from even the earliest of days, God was already directing on paths that ultimately would lead towards his name being glorified? You guys know how much I love the two words, so that. Okay? So let's go with a little so that in here. Hang with me. Jacob and Esau wrestle in the womb. Rivals are made. So that. One day, Jacob would steal a birthright and a blessing so that a brother would get murderously angry, so that Jacob was forced to flee to his uncle, so that Jacob would eventually have four wives and a whole bunch of kids, 12 sons in particular, so that the 12 tribes of Israel would have origin, so that Judah, one of those sons, would be one of the uh, tribes that later a king would be uh, a king would be named, and that king would be David. He would descend, so that a promise by God would be made to David that there would be a kingdom that never ends, so that a path is paved for a future king named Jesus, so that this path to salvation for any who accepted it would be made available, so that God's name would be made great. Do you follow the paths? What if we went another slightly different angle? Because we can do that. This one will pick up right after the womb wrestling, birthright blessing, stealing. So that Jacob would eventually have four wives and a lot of kids, 12 sons in particular. So that one of those sons would be named Joseph, who was a favorite. So that the rest of the sons would get really mad and sell him into slavery in Egypt. So that eventually all the nation and surrounding nations would be saved from famine so that Jacob and his family, all of Israel, would end up in Egypt, out of the promised land, so that later we get the story of the Israelite people being enslaved in Egypt so that God could work his plagues and power so that he could free the Israelites in the story of the Exodus so that a beautiful Passover set my people free story would be told so that a covenant relationship would begin at Mount Sinai with rules, regulations, and sacrifices so that the story of sacrifices and a perfect lamb would be told so that the ultimate story, the ultimate story of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb on the cross would bring glory to God's name. Could God have been directing these paths all along, paths that we look at Jacob and say, oh, don't live like that, but God knew ultimately it would lead to the big story being told. Salvation. 
in the middle of Jacob blessing his 12 sons. I forget what number it was, but it was right after the son named Dan and right before the son named Gad. Jacob joyously blurted out, I trust in you for salvation, O Lord. I trust in you for salvation, O Lord. That's Genesis 49, verse 18. The paths that we see not as righteousness in Jacob's life end up being right paths that God leads people on towards Jesus, who ultimately is the only reason any of us can be called righteous. Right paths. He leads me in right paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Still tracking with me? All right, let's keep going. Psalm 23, verse 4, the beginning of it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, I know that we all will walk through this valley at some point. But in reading Jacob's story, it seems like there's a little bit more valley traversing than mountaintop trekking. I mean, I see a fair amount of time that he spends in this shadow of death. When he steals his brother's birthright, his brother gets mad. And he says to himself in Genesis 27, I'm soon going to be mourning my father's death, and after that I will kill my brother. That is the valley of the shadow of death. Okay? When the whole Dinah defiling, sun retaliating Shechem debacle happened, what did Jacob say in Genesis 34? He said, we are so small that all the surrounding areas are going to gather together, they're going to crush us, and we will be wiped out. That, too, is some wandering in the valley of the shadow of death. Jacob mourned the death of Joseph. He mourned Rachel's death when she died giving birth to her her, uh, son, Benjamin. Tears were shed over Deborah, the nurse, dying. And when it came time for the boys to bury their dad, Isaac, I'm sure there was grieving then also. This is all part of Jacob's shadow of death. So he walked through that. And that lyric in the song continues, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Did Jacob really fear no evil? I don't know. There's several times in the story where we look at him, and it seems that he is afraid. He runs from his brother. I don't imagine that was very fun. I think he probably had some fear. When he was coming back to his brother, we see in his prayer that there is some fear. There was fear with the the whole town of Shechem, that incident. I don't know what was going on internally, whether or not he had no fear of evil. But what we do know from the text is the last part of that verse in Psalm 23. For you are with me. We know that Jacob recognized God's presence. We know he did. Genesis 35, verse 3. Jacob says, we are now going to Bethel where I will build an altar to the God who answered my prayers when I was in distress. He has been with me wherever I have gone. He has been with me wherever I have gone. We see that in the story from when God makes that original promise in Bethel to when God brings him back to Bethel. We don't know if Jacob had fear of evil, but we know he recognized God's presence. That verse continues, for your rod and staff, they comfort me, or they protect and comfort me. Kids, this is part of your children's bulletin right here. Tools of a shepherd were rods and staffs, okay? Rods protected, staffs guided. Rods protected, staffs guided or corrected. God told Jacob during the dream at Bethel that he would protect him wherever he went. Throughout Jacob's life, God did that. Now, do we ever see God guiding Jacob? Do we ever see him telling him where to go? Yeah. 
Genesis 30, 31, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your father and grandfather, to your relatives there, and I will be with you. Looks like guiding going on to me. Next verse, Genesis 35, verse 1. Then God said, Get ready and move to Bethel. Settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled your brother Egypt. Both of those verses say to me that God was doing some guiding. So we're seeing some connections. At least ones that could make us think, huh, did David think of all this when he was writing Psalm 23? Let's keep going. Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table or a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. Jacob had worked for 20 years for his uncle. It wasn't always fun. He wasn't treated fairly. He was tricked and cheated several times. He recognized this mistreatment. So eventually, he grabbed his wives and his kids, and he says, let's go. Come on. And they go quietly. They leave without Laban knowing. Well, Laban, it says in my, in my Bible, when he found out, he followed in hot pursuit. Could we consider Laban an enemy at that point? You know, maybe not in the traditional sense, but I tell you what, when God has to step in and tell a guy, hey, back off, there's at least some enemy-esque going on. God did this in uh, Genesis chapter 31, verse 24. It says this. It says, the, the previous night God had appeared to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream, and he told him, I'm warning you, leave Jacob alone. Okay, so let's at least pretend for a minute or two that in that moment, Laban is an enemy. What does the psalm say God does in the presence of our enemies? Sets a table, prepares a feast. So what happens in our story? A feast is prepared. Genesis 31, verse 53 and 54. Laban says, I call on the God of our ancestors, the God of your grandfather Abraham, and the God of my grandfather Nahor, to to serve as a judge between us. So Jacob took an oath before the fearsome God of his father Isaac to respect the boundary line. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice to God there on the mountain and invited everyone to a covenant feast. After they had eaten, they spent the night on the mountain. A feast in the presence of someone who at that time could have been considered an enemy. Song continues, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Or you honor me by anointing my head with oil, and my cup overflows with blessing. You know, we see stones getting anointed with oil. We see altars getting anointed with oil. We don't see Jacob's head getting anointed with oil. But we do see him being honored. When he moves to Egypt, one of the first stops he makes is to visit Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the country. That's an honor. And if you step back, look at it from a bird's eye view, Jacob's life would definitely be seen as one that was overflowing. I mean, look, he had all he needed, 13-plus kids, I mean, upwards of 70 grandkids when it really got down to him, overwhelming material blessings, all of that could be seen as God overflowing Jacob's cup. I mean, if nothing else, it shows God's continual pursuit of him. Showing him grace after grace after grace, which ties in great to the beginning of the last lyric of David's song. Psalm 23, 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You guys know that song, right? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. You know I was going to sing at some point. 
I used to sing that loud when I was a kid, and I don't know if I knew what it meant. Okay, but this past week when reading it from the message translation, man, it came alive. When Eugene Peterson says that that verse really could be translated, that your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life, there's something rich in that. God's beauty and love chasing, God's goodness and mercy following. In the story of Jacob, we see that taking place from the day he's born till the day he goes home to be with God and the rest of his ancestors. God had told Jacob that he would multiply his descendants. Did it happen? Check. God had told Jacob that all the families on the earth would be blessed by him and through his descendants. Did that happen? Yes, check. God had told Jacob that he would be with him, protect him, bring him back to the land, not leave him until all this was accomplished. Check, check, check. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow. God's beauty and love chased after. That's what Jacob's life looks like to me. In the final lyric of David's song, second half of verse 6, says, I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Was David thinking about time in the tabernacle? Probably. But could he have heard echoes of his ancestor Jacob? There's a chance. Okay, When Jacob first had that interaction with God at Bethel, we see in Genesis chapter 28, verse 19. If I can get there. That he had this experience. God showed up, said, I'm going to be with you everywhere. Jacob woke up. He got up. He took the stone, rested it against his head, set it up as a memorial pillar. It says he then named that place Bethel, which means house of God. Later, when he returned to that same place, we see almost the exact same thing take place. Genesis 35, verse 14 and 15. God showed up, says, I am El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. Gives him the promise again. So it says, Jacob set up a stone pillar to mark where God had spoken to him. And Jacob named that place Bethel, which means house of God. You know, I wonder in all the time that Jacob was gone from that first time he met God to the time he returned to that experience again. I wonder if he ever spent time wishing he was there back at Bethel while he was shepherding, while he was raising children, while he was dealing with an uncle or father-in-law that was a little bit challenging. Was there ever time he spent just sitting there thinking, man, I wish I was back at the house of God. And if he was thinking that, if he longed to be there, could it not be said that he longed to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? I think it fits. And I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that David may have at least had some sort of idea as to the story of Jacob when he was writing Psalm 23. So what do we do with this? How does this fit with us? Well, if Jacob's story is our story, and if Psalm 23 fits into the life of Jacob, could it not also fit into our life as well? I mean, the Lord is our shepherd. We have everything that we need. He promises rest to those who come to him, strength to face the day. 
I have no doubt that God can and does direct our paths and that in those paths, he's ultimately going to bring honor to his name. You know, and at some point in your life, you haven't faced death yet. You haven't encountered it. You will. And through that, whether you feel it or not, God's presence will be right there with you. He's going to guide you. He's going to protect you. Even as sinners, enemies against God, he has prepared a table for us to take part in. If we pause long enough, I'm sure that we will see God's blessing in our lives. And I would hope that there's at least a part of us that longs to be in the house of the Lord forever. I'm not talking about grabbing a sleeping bag and camping out in here, okay? I'm talking about longing to be in constant communion with God. Longing to be in His presence no matter what we're doing, where we're going, who we're with. That would be dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Years down the road from now, if somebody were to write a song about you, would it sound at all like Psalm 23? What words would they say? My guess is that at some point this week, at some point this week, you're going to find yourself, your story, fitting into Psalm 23. And I want you to look for that time. When you have that moment, call somebody. Text somebody, email somebody, and say, hey, guess what? Jacob's story is my story. Let's pray. God, it is exciting. It is encouraging. It's comforting. It's challenging to be able to look at the life of a character in the Bible and realize how often we fit right into their story. I want to thank you, Father, for these last six weeks as we have been able to see Jacob's life and, and as we've been able to dig deeper into it. I thank you for the times we've seen challenge and, and heartache and hardship and wrong choices. And, and I thank you for the ways in which we connect with that. I thank you, Lord, that in all of this, we've been able to see your presence with Jacob, your protection, your provision, and how, Lord, we can look at our life and see that same thing. Lord, I pray that we would never grow tired of seeing our story fit into your story. And I pray, Father, that no matter how much we wander, no matter how many times we try to go our own way, I pray that you will not give up on us, that you will continue to seek after us with grace after grace, that your love would pursue us and chase us, that your goodness and mercy would follow us. Jesus, may we recognize that in our every day. I ask this in your name. Amen.